Welcome to A Beautiful Faith, where we give voice to all that makes faith beautiful. Henry, I just want you to know as we start this off today that you are beautiful. Aw, as are you. Thanks. I really... Uh, I, You've given I, me faith in beauty. I've really been working on myself this week as I've been in self-quarantine, you know, just really, really uh, working on my physical appearance and, and just trying to, you know, up my game for the nobody that I'm seeing while I'm in self-quarantine. Yeah, and I'm not in self-quarantine, but since we're dating the intros to these podcasts, which I was talking to somebody actually the other day, it's a side note, and they were saying they really enjoyed this podcast, but they said like a, a funny game for them is to try and figure out when we recorded these, because obviously we banked a lot of episodes before we launched. And so while the episodes are relevant, no matter when you listen to them, our banter in the beginning it's somewhat dated at times, I guess, because they're like, oh, that's when that was happening. And so this person was like, you were talking about like wildfires in Australia and it's like February, you know? <laughs> I love like, it. Yeah, no, that's like, the point. Yeah. That's why we always say like at the time of this recording or whatever, like we talk about what's going on in our lives. And yes, this is evergreen content for the most part. But yeah, our banter is going to be kind of based on current events. Although, if things go in the extreme, like they say, this COVID-19 banter will be still relevant in July or August when you're still in your house fighting over the last scraps of toilet paper, eating the last can of tomato soup that you had in the back of the cabinet, and that one last piece of Frosted Flakes from the box. You mean a Frosted Flake? They have one yes, Frosted Flake. A Frosted Flake that you dip in the condensed soup that you yeah. don't go ahead and heat up. Yeah. That, that, uh... No, I've been... I've been in self-quarantine for a few days now, um, and if you want to know my full thoughts on coronavirus stuff, you can go listen to Absurdity, episode 131. You should have said you could catch it on Absurdity. No, because Absurdity, Over the is, error absurdity is not an infection. It's a blessing. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, no, I, I, uh, pretty much, I'm pretty transparent and straightforward about my feelings on coronavirus and social responsibility and everything else because I have asthma. And uh, turns out, you know, this thing really, really threatens people with respiratory problems, like those with asthma. The wow, thing you're that not I have. short. You're not short of breath about this topic. I actually, so I was. What's What's funny is the morning that that episode of Absurdity went live, literally twelve hours before that. Well, really four hours before it was supposed to go live, but we got delayed. So about 12 hours before it went live, I was informed that a week prior I may have been exposed to the virus. So I'm in self-quarantine for another few days, um, which is annoying to say the least. But uh, luckily I had gone grocery shopping with you uh, last week or, uh, you know, a week ago and uh, right at the beginning of the toilet paper panic. And had picked up some groceries that have now come in handy as I'm not leaving my house. So this ah, has worked out really yeah. well for me. Meanwhile, a couple medical professionals that I spoke to believe that I already had the virus back the beginning of February. Before everybody was freaking out about it. When I went to my trip to Wyoming and ended up six, sick for six days with a fever and stuff that was just ridiculous. All the symptoms tend to match, though there's no way to know for certain because I didn't get Tested, however, I had just come back from a trip to D.C. where I interacted with several crowded groups of foreigners in certain Smithsonian museums and then got sick shortly right after that. Now, admittedly, you could get sick from any number of things in crowds, but it was just I've not been that sick in a long while. So probably if there's cases in Wyoming, it's my fault and I apologize because I had no clue. Well, but now I'm being very aware. Being you're the reason Wyoming is shut down now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. That um, one state got shut down because of me. No, the I don't know if they're shut down. Don't don't take my word for that. Um, no, being from Florida, you know what else I've learned? It's not just that you can get sick from crowds; it's that you can get sick of crowds as well. Ooh. Uh, being, I'm so tired of Disney beaches. You name it. I like the beach itself. I hate the fact that there are other people at the beach. That is annoying. Well, um, Disney is now closed, isn't it? Well, the worst thing, honestly, the, yeah, Disney's closed, but Florida's governor, at least as of this morning, um, and today's March 18, so there's your, uh, if you've been trying to guess oh, when we're recording this. Now you just this. took away no, the total No, game he of... had four minutes to figure this out. That's on him. Um, as of this morning, the Florida's governor refused to shut down Florida's beaches. And the problem is that Florida residents are not the ones at the beach. 
because they they they're gonna avoid the beach during spring break. Florida residents do not go to the beach as much as you would think uh, during spring break because they know that that's where all the tourists are. And the problem is that all those pictures of people that you're seeing on the beach in Florida are tourists, and that spells disaster, like literal disaster when all these tourists go home, like. The fact that Florida has not shut down their beaches and 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 just quarantined off all of that uh, is is a nightmare to me. Like it's going to create so many more problems the second all of these people go home. And I have zero interest. I'm really glad that my workplace stopped all travel for the next four weeks because I don't want to be anywhere near uh, a tourist that is coming back from Florida from any you know that is going home. So yeah, it's a real nightmare. This whole thing is a mess. Yes, I'm currently on working from home situation for the foreseeable future. Although that gets more complicated with my line of work because all of the demographic I was working with have also all been sent home. Hey, that means that you have people near you to work with now for the rest of the semester. Except that that my work has forbidden face-to-face meetings with all these people. Oh, true. Uh, Well, you got FaceTime. You got uh, Skype. You got Zoom. You got uh, you could host some Zoom. Oh, you could do Zoom church. Yeah. Woo-hoo. Uh, you can borrow my Zoom account because I have the pro. I have the pro Zoom account for when I do guest recordings. And uh, you could uh, you can invite like 100 people to it. Have a good time. Have a great time. Social you, distancing church. You think I'm kidding, but I'm not. You should act now. I want to do this. SDC. Yeah, we, um, we probably should since all the churches in North and South Carolina, at least the Adventist ones and a majority of a lot of other denominations, but I can't speak for what their official policies are, are basically shut down because our governor in North Carolina here, where I live, has basically shut all the restaurants, bars, other stores, most stores actually. In, I'm in the Charlotte area, which is a huge metro area, and it's been very weird the last couple of days, the few times that I've had to go out for something that there is not a lot of traffic anymore and most stores are all closed. And so Mm -hmm. all the parking lots are empty. The malls are closed, everything. And so you're in the middle of the day and it's just empty. It's not quite ghost town. There's still cars around doing things, but it is, yeah, it is pretty, pretty bare. Yeah, no, it's, it's bad. So, oh, well, um, it is what it is. You know, it's bad though. When Chick-fil-A, uh, when Chick-fil-A closes the, the, for the next two weeks, I think Chick-fil-A has closed all dine-in. They are only drive-through. Uh, well, a lot of states won't allow them to have dine-in now yeah. as well. Like in North Carolina, they, they stopped dine-in. Yeah. Like no, Chick-fil-A, Chick-fil-A corporate said that they are no longer allowed to. I was talking with someone, as I went through the drive-through like I normally do uh, for breakfast. And yeah, that's what I discovered. So enough about coronavirus though i'm sure it'll come back up naturally in this conversation um let's talk about yeah, that i think let's, you're too emotionally overthinking yeah this. um let's i hate you let's uh transition <laughs> into this because uh we're talking today about uh basically balancing emotional and intellectual spiritual needs the idea being that there there tends to be two big camps i think within within faith and within faith communities, one camp says like your emotions are bad. This tends to be more the fundamentalist group um, that would say you, you know, you can't trust your emotions. You can't trust your heart. Um, you know, you, you can't, you can't go off of feelings. Feelings are bad. Okay. And then you've got uh, the camp that's intellectual that, that kind of downplays intellectual needs and says, well, all that matters is that I, you know, feel God's presence that I, you know, intuitively know it's there, but I don't, I don't need to know, I don't need to, you know, memorize scripture. I don't need to spend eight eight hours a day reading it. I don't need to go to Bible study. Um, uh, It just matters that I have my own personal relationship with God and I feel him close. And so, and that tends to come from the more progressive side of things. And the problem is that there's a third option, which actually includes both of those. Um... (laughs) And, and it's properly balancing emotional needs and intellectual spiritual needs as well. And, and, and properly acknowledging that those two things are real and, and needed. So, um, Henry, I'll let you take off in, in kind of leading us into this discussion. Oh, mercy. Well, you know, in preparing for this discussion was reading through a few articles and, and topics online just to kind of see where current thought is. 
uh, around this issue and just two little quotes that we were looking at that kind of really encapsulates this is there was a relevant magazine article entitled Don't Let Emotions Dictate Your Faith. Now, if I remember correctly, I think the article is from 2014. So since we're talking about more relevant modern perspectives, you go, well, that was a lot of years ago. Yeah. It's not it's not that many, but it's also one of their most read on the topic in the archives. So people are still reading it today. I was double checking that. So, I mean, I, I think they haven't had to write another one because it, it basically summarizes what they think about that. And, and the whole point of this article could really be encapsulated in in the closing statement that the author made. And they said, quote, rather than treating great spiritual encounters like a drug whose effects will wear off in time, we need to keep reminding ourselves that being a Christian isn't always going to be easy. Following Jesus requires discipline, dedication, and most of all, faith. But we can relax knowing that God doesn't change no matter how much our feelings do, end quote. Mm. Wow. Uh, so I, I just want to point out that um, in in saying that you were getting current thought on this, you referenced an article that was written in late 2014. Yeah, well, that's why I gave that disclaimer. It was, uh, but it's still the most read. <laughs> no, no, no. It's a good article. And, and honestly, like if you read it now, which we'll link it in the show notes, um, and I won't forget to link them in the show notes this time. The, so we've had a lot of show notes with no linkage. <laughs> um, the thanks. Um, the <laughs> don't get too emotional about it. Honestly, if you read this article now, uh, it feels exactly. I mean, it's still current. It's still very much true to today uh, with a lot of what it says. There's it, it's it's it it is really evergreen content. I think, and so I I would definitely agree with with this. Um, I would agree with this quote in substance for sure. Um, and, but it is, a, it, it does play into that, that kind of false dichotomy that says, well, we, you know, we can't rely on our feelings. We have to rely on, um, discipline, dedication, faith the, the, we have to rely on, on basically our knowledge, uh, to get through because, and, and that last line really sums it up for me, but we can relax knowing God doesn't change no matter how much our feelings do. Um, that's kind of, there's the dig at emotion right there. Yeah, like, that's there's the certain dig. parts of this statement that you're like, okay, from a balanced perspective, I kind of get what they're saying. But then you see the overall tenor of the article. Cause they're like, ha, your, your emotions are all over the place. You psychopath. Yep, exactly. No, it, it, it is. So yes, one of these things, it, it's not that it's all, it's not that it's at just outright dangerous. I think the effect that the, the impact that that last sentence especially has on people is just, it's subtle. Like it just kind of, um, it just kind of sneaks in there and you're like, I don't know why I'm uncomfortable with that immediately, but I am and can't put my finger on it right now, but I eventually I will. So yeah, no, that, that absolutely is a. It's a. I agree with once again the substance of it, but I can I can definitely see why it also can be a um, a pretty uh, I don't know um, you can have mixed reactions to it. Well, and that's kind of how modern approaches to anti emotionalism are always couched, at least within Christianity, a, a lot of times, is the idea that that. that they, it's not as overtly against emotion anymore, but it definitely denigrates it. It's like, well, yeah, okay, you can have emotion, but what good is that going to do you without blah, 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 you know? I, it, it's kind of the yes, but mentality. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. So what's the, uh, what's the next quote that you have? Yeah, now to the opposite. Now this is written, I think, just last year. So now I've increased from 2014 to 2019. So now we're getting much more current, unless you're listening to this in some archive somewhere 20 years from now, in which case, wow, we're so thankful that we are still in the world. All right. Anyway, this is from Alfred Rehwinkel, if I'm even pronouncing that right. I do not know how to pronounce that name. Sorry, Alfred. Who's a professor of theology at Concordia Theological Seminary. And this is kind of on the other extreme where they're arguing for more of an emotional faith uh, is, is really the the point he's trying to make. And so I just picked these couple sentences out of his greater, I won't call it a dissertation, but it was more than an article. It was kind of a research piece he was talking about. And he said, quote, 
People are influenced more by their feelings than by reason. Emotions are more tenacious than ideas. They give color and richness to life and value to our possessions. They make an individual attractive or repulsive, responsible or irrational, saintly or ignoble. Emotions are an important factor in man's religious life. God so loved the world is the essence of the gospel. Emotions enrich Christian worship and the Christian faith sanctifies and purifies our emotions, end quote. I, um, I can confidently say, ironically, I, maybe not ironically, uh, that I agree with this statement more than the first. Um, like, hard agree. Uh, there's a, yeah. there's yeah. a, <laughs> there's a thing. And again, I, because of the last line. Yes. But also, I mean, honestly, the first line too, um, because that people are more influenced more by their feelings than by reason. One of the, one of the big things that, that we're encountering now is that to, is to, in order to convince someone that they are wrong, you must first show them that there is a community that will embrace them or accept them when they change their mind. Uh, because mm. many people will choose to still, will, will dig in their heels in order to still feel accepted and like they're a part of the group. A big part of identity you know, is within the group that you're a part of. And so to accept that what you have believed and, and this whole group has believed was wrong uh, is to basically accept that you were wrong about your identity. It like it can trigger an entire identity crisis. Basically, um, those emotions are, I think, incredibly powerful. So I, to be honest, I do, I do very much see this as, um, I very much see this as ha holding more weight than the first one does. There, oh, absolutely. Now, and I think, of course, this guy is a professor, so he he's fair. obviously more widely read. And probably more studied. I'm just going to make that assumption. I don't know him personally, but probably more studied as well on the topic from a theological perspective, I would hope, as a professor yeah. of theology. Well, and I don't want to take away from the first one. Like, rather than treating great spiritual encounters like a drug whose effects will wear off in time, uh, we need to remind ourselves that uh, being a Christian isn't always going to be easy. Like, that line is incredibly true. I actually, so I spoke for a week of prayer at a high school. Uh, in a private school, and uh, at the end of it, they wanted me to do an altar call, which, if any of you know what an altar call is, that's when the preacher near the end of his sermon... Uh, You're accepted to be emotional. Yeah, he, he, right? Um, where the sermon, uh, the pastor at the end of the sermon basically begs you to come forward and give your life to God and then prays over you and uh, connects you with someone to get baptized and, you know, all this good stuff. They don't, some beg, others don't. Um, I actually have a significant issue with altar calls. I don't like giving them, period. Um, and part of the reason I don't like them is because of that spiritual drug, that great spiritual encounter issue of, um, I, you know, God was the most real to me when I felt this moment and, and I embraced this moment and I, and, and this and X, Y, and Z happened and I came forward and, and, and the pastor prayed over me and it was just so real and, and I just felt it. Now I don't feel that anymore. So when I gave my altar call, I actually told the the students, I said, um, Hey, I want you to give your life to Christ. I didn't say it like specifically like this, um, but I basically basically said I would normally call you up if you want to give your heart to God or you want to get baptized or anything like that. But in this case, I'm not going to. And the reason being is if I do that, then you will. There's a high risk or a high chance that you tie your faith experience to the spiritual high that is this moment. And so the the difficulty a lot of Christians have is identifying God in the moments where you don't feel him and feel his presence and identifying, uh, identifying God in the monotony of life, because ultimately being a Christian doesn't necessarily mean your entire life changes, but rather it's the, your entire perspective on the life you're living that changes in many ways. And so I basically said like your staff are here, and they pray for you every day, hoping that you will talk with them, hoping that they can be a conduit for you to connect with God and, and connect with church and a community. So um, you, after I pray over everyone in this room, you're more than welcome to come up and talk with me, or you're welcome to talk with a staff member that you trust, your pastor, anyone. If you want to make the decision to follow Jesus, just make it. Um, and that, um, the students actually really respected that, as did the staff. Um, I have no idea how many kids actually ended up talking with someone. And that's the kind of the uncertainty there. But ultimately, like I 
I very much understand the risk that is the, the getting addicted to a spiritual high drug. Yeah. No, well played. Well done. Well done. Thank you. One of the, one of the students actually wrote an article about it a little bit later, um, in their, like, in their, um, in their, like, student paper or whatever, and it was, uh, I didn't think that they would notice that, really, but that's actually, the student wrote about it and was basically like, um, yeah, the, this was, most students thought that this was amazing, and they quoted someone about it, and they were really grateful that it wasn't a, uh, that there was a quiet way to accept Jesus, and it didn't have to be this loud, big decision that everyone has to see in the moment, and yeah, they really, they ended up really appreciating it as students. So even if they didn't talk with someone, the fact that they had, they left with a more positive impression of, of what that is, what that decision is in my book is still a huge win. Yeah. And it definitely does speak to the tension that we still see in religious communities today between emotion and intellect in, in religious life as in how is it to be employed and when is it acceptable and when isn't it and which one dominates and which one doesn't. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, well, and, and to be a hundred percent honest, both of those quotes that we've already talked about, um, I very much see them both as, as the, the horse pulling the cart, so to speak. So the horse has to be in front of the cart in order to pull the cart where it wants it to be. And which means that if you're trying to, you know, um, if you're trying to pull someone in a direction, so if you're trying to convince someone that feelings are more important Uh, It's kind of, if you take that analogy, it can be like, all right, I'm going to go kind of overboard with this, knowing that you won't accept everything, but maybe you'll accept a little bit of it. Maybe I can get you to nudge a little bit closer to where I actually want you to go. um, If I know that you're only potentially going to accept a small percentage of what I say. So like the value of the first quote about, about the kind of intellectual side of things is huge uh, because there are some people that really do need to understand that their intellectual faith is needs to be nurtured and is important and they're completely ignoring it or neglecting it and vice versa for the, the seminary quote. I just think there's, there's definitely a need for both. And I ultimately, I think that tension is actually a good thing. I don't know how you feel about it. No, no, I, well, of course we're kind of getting ahead, uh, of the point, but yeah, that tension I think is vital. It's just often it's misunderstood and abused. Fair, fair. So um, let's 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 uh, get our history lesson from from Doctor Henry. Even though you n- don't have a doctorate, yes, um, I do. Do not call me that. I'm not going to um, be like from, several people from from Teacher Henry. <laughs> yeah, from from Teacher Henry. Well, now, yes, it's nerd moment. We need to talk about how we got here with this intellectual versus emotional debate in at least Christianity. We're going to speak primarily to Christianity, although it happens in all faith communities to certain extents and forms. And and I don't know if we should even call it tension as much as pendulum mm. in emphasis. In other words, you, you know, as as a relative of mine once said, for every mile of road, there's two miles of ditches. Right. So it, it, humans always have a tendency to end up in one of the ditches and not stay on the road. And so when you back up to early Christianity, and by early, I mean going all the way back to apostolic time. So what we might say is if we say, okay, like the book of Acts or something like that, like, okay, here is what Christianity was. Here's its, here's its lotus point. It's, it's, it's birth. Okay. Let's just say this is perfection. Well, then we'll just assume that they knew how to deal with emotion and intellect and those various needs perfectly. Now, of course, there could be some argument when you study the book of Acts that they didn't do it perfectly, but that's a different conversation for another time. When we, when we get into history, you really start in the second century with a whole movement of Montanism, okay? Not to be mistaken for monasticism, which we'll get to later, even though the words sound similar. Montanism and that's, it's a, it comes in the second century. Its founder was Montanus, which is where we get the term from. And basically what it was, was it was a group of people following this guy who, who held similar views about all the basic tenets of Christian doctrine to those of the rest of the church, but they got labeled a heresy for their belief in what they called new prophetic revelations. And the idea was, is that they thought what we have is not it. We're not just done that we need to rely on the spontaneity of the Holy Spirit to, to give us new experiences and new insights 
and, and to basically influence our personal ethics. Right now, now some people would say this is even the the early forms of the charismatic movement, but we'll, that comes many centuries later. But some of them do like to point out their their scholars to this. But so basically, an early group in the second century that said, "Hey, just knowing all this stuff and believing all this stuff isn't enough. We need to have some sort of experience." And and they tended to look towards the emotional side of things. Like, where's my emotional experience with the with this faith? And right off the bat, they were labeled a heresy. Mm. So the church was kind of like, yeah, you suck. Okay, well, now at the late 2nd century to the 3rd centuries, the pendulum starts swinging again, and you really have the full embrace of Gnosticism. Okay, the basic term meaning having knowledge or gnosis, right, knowledge. So this was a group that started emphasizing personal knowledge over orthodox teachings, traditions, or ecclesiastical authority. So in other words, they say, well, it's not just enough for this group of people to think they know what's going on or whatever, but that the key element of salvation to Gnostics was to have direct knowledge of the supreme divinity, and, and you experience that through mystical or esoteric insight, but basically knowledge is salvation. Okay, Gnosticism to various forms still exists today. You'll probably see lots of bits of these things still seeping down through history, but Gnosticism, which does get brought up in the biblical text itself by the Apostle John in his letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and even the beginnings of the Gospel of John write to this, because Gnosticism was already starting to become a thing in, you know, in the later parts, moving into the 1st century, but it really starts dominating in the 2nd and 3rd centuries, and the idea that, no, emotion's nothing, knowledge is everything. Hmm. If you know it, you can be saved— Emotion doesn't help you at all. Well, obviously, that's kind of as dumb as it sounds, and so you have a flip back. You guys are going to start noticing this pendulum just keeps swinging. So by the third century, you have monasticism show up. And this was basically—and this, by the way, is interesting because this movement is really the first one that transcended out of Christianity into most of the major faith communities pretty quick. Yeah. So in other words, Buddhism, Islam, Taoism, Judaism already had forms of this, and Hinduism all have monastical movements mm. to this day. Okay. In fact, one of the largest is, is actually in Buddhism, right? We think of Buddhist monks to this day. That's a very common thing with their orange robes. It's very iconic. Yeah. Well, well, I mean, it comes right out of the third century, this basic monasticism, and, and the church was, the Christian church was not immune. And it was an idea that, the, that a religious way of life would, would come from people renouncing, quote, worldly pursuits, which makes me want to talk about secular versus sacred smackdown over on Absurdity. You should go listen to that. <laughs> but anyway, renounce worldly pursuits to devote oneself fully to spiritual mm. pursuits. And the idea behind this was, was that just knowledge was not good enough. They had that the life still wasn't being altered by this knowledge. And so they kind of swung to, again, the experience. We might call it more emotionalism now, but back then they were more on the experience. What's the experience of Christianity? And they thought the world had sapped them of the ability to move beyond anything but knowledge kind of the Gnostic train of thought. So they said, no, we need to start living in communities focused on how do we experience Christianity? How do we become pure faith communities or whatever? So, so anyway, that's basically monasticism. And that continued as a predominant thought all the way through the 10th century. So it had quite a big run compared to the other ones. It just, it held on and kept going. And in many communities, it still keeps going. Hmm. Right. Yeah. So again, but now it's going to swing. Okay, so then in the 11th century, you really have scholasticism. Okay, Ooh, I know, that, I know that one. That's um, um, that's that that's that company that that makes that's the the book the publishing company. That's what I wanted. That does all those kids books that you get at like reading fairs in elementary school, right? Scholastic. <laughs> well, maybe maybe they will sponsor us. Actually, no, it's not. But they do choose that word. Pro I mean, I wasn't the marketing people that came up with their name. But I have a feeling it would actually deal with this term because scholasticism still exists in the educational community today. True. The church has kind of moved beyond it. But interestingly enough, and this you're going to see a lot of this with the pendulum swing, scholasticism actually originated from within monastic schools. Mm. So monasticism, this idea, it's about experience, it's about emotion. Well, you know, they kind of swung a teeny bit too far to the emotional side. So within their own communities, you had people that started saying, okay, emotion isn't enough. 
mm. you know, and, and they, and they probably thought that too, cause they're just stuck in these sequestered kind of communities. Yeah. And they said, okay, well, I'm all into emotion, but some of this stuff isn't making sense anymore. Yeah. Right? After centuries of kind of inbred development, if you will, within these isolated communities. And so they said, okay, we need to, we need to emphasize dialectic reasoning. Now, dialectical is just really a fancy way of saying a discourse between two people of opposing views. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so they said, we need to have these opposing viewpoints brought in and we need to extend knowledge by inference and by resolving contradictions between the two thoughts which is just a really fancy way of saying scholastic thought, and this is more where like universities and things would understand it. Scholastic thought is, is an idea of conceptual analysis where you're drawing distinctions both in the classroom and in writing. And it really is where modern debate clubs kind of came from. The idea that if you take two different ideas or two opposing thoughts and you debate them or you put them side by side and, and reason it out, by, by, you know, questions and having responses given and then counter proposals argued and arguments rebutted. Exactly. Modern debate club methodology right there. Yeah. That what derives out of this, however you synthesize, however you, you, you merge the two, that's where truth and knowledge comes from. Right. And so that's really scholasticism, the 11th to the 14th centuries. That's really how that came out. Yeah. Well, then you're going to overcorrect again and you're going to go to mysticism. Now, please do not misunderstand this because mysticism is still used today. Some of these terms have taken on modern meanings, but we're dealing from it a historical perspective. And in the 14th and 15th centuries, there was this idea that, okay, now we're spending all of our time debating, all of our time just arguing evidence or not evidence or just trying to come up with a conclusion by figuring out what's the middle of these two opposing viewpoints. Mm-hmm. And this is dumb, and probably some of them thought it was rather boring so they went to the other extreme and said, well, we need religious ecstasies. Hmm. Okay, and that's kind of a creepy word for some people. But basically, they're like, we want religious experiences that go beyond just this knowledge. If this is all there is, it sucks. We want to f- explore alternate states of consciousness to, to discover the divine, which is beyond the normal intellectual senses. Okay, now that's where it ended up which is more kind of where we think of modern mysticism, kind of like getting into altered states of consciousness or drug use or things like Mm -hmm. that. Initially where it started, and you see some of this holdover in more fundamentalist groups today. In fact, you might see a lot of these groups still have influence. We call them different things or different points of emphasis in Christianity today. But it was initially tried to use to find hidden meanings and related thought in biblical texts. Mm. Interestingly enough, they said, okay, we got to have some sort of ecstasy you know, existential, e- is that the word? Existential. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, ecstasy. Oh, okay. Yeah, I don't know if existential is the word I was looking uh, for. You just, it sounded like you like gave up on yeah, whatever I, I, you were. Well, yeah. I, for, I forgot how to say ecstasy for a brief moment or the plural. All right. An, an ecstasy in this text to figure out what its hidden meaning is almost like a conspiracy theorist to a certain extent. Yeah. Basically. The idea that what's the hidden numbers and meanings in this stuff. And oh, look, COVID-19 is actually in John 316 or something dumb. Which, by the way, I just made that up off the top of my head, but I have a bad feeling someone's going to run with that quote. No, our listeners are too smart for that. (laughs) Okay, excellent. And they're emotionally... Balanced. uh, Their emotional well-being is in a better place than some. (laughs) Only if they've listened to... Only only if they... No, not yet. Not yet. No, that hasn't dropped yet. But anyway... Well, there's a uh, major spoiler... For everyone. Spoiler alert, anyway, in our our order of, of episodes coming down the pike. But anyway, interestingly enough mysticism starts dying off as a main focus in the 16th century because of a guy named Martin Luther. You've probably heard of before who actually condemned mysticism because he said it was more related to Plato and philosophy than Christianity. Hmm. So basically this was one of the first times of the church shaming culture as far as science and philosophy by yeah. saying, bah, this is too much like philosophy and Plato, and that sucks, so it can't be true. You can't, you can't really get in touch with the divine emotionally or whatever else. That's dumb. Which leads us into our next... It, it's an overcorrection, but it wasn't the main point of this. They, they call it Reformation Orthodoxy. This is the 16th and 17th centuries, which, again, is called Reformation Orthodoxy because of the Protestant Reformation. Right? So you have this idea that the Reformation is underway, 
And because of new access to the, to the scriptures, because of this idea that a lot of this was hinging on theological debate, then a lot of Protestantism, the protest that was going on, was over systems of doctrines. And so thus the emphasis was on right doctrine, which was to be derived by careful thought and study of the scriptures. Mm. Right. So now their whole thing is emotion doesn't matter right now because we're having to prove to this church that's persecuting us why they're wrong. Mm. Right. So the emphasis, and, and that's why I say this is an overcorrection that I don't think was as intentional as the others, but it did happen where their main concern is not overcorrecting from emotion. It's just they overcorrected because there was such an emphasis on doctrinal understanding and thought process because of a really existential, now I can use the word existential correctly, an existential crisis for these adherents that were beginning to understand mm. or rediscover things in the biblical narrative and they were being literally killed for yeah. it, right? Or their lives were being upended. So, so then you have Reformation Orthodoxy basically gets underway. Well, that's going to give way, obviously, after a, a short bit of time with all of that, once that settles down to pietism and then eventually Methodism. That's where our Methodist listeners will get to go hurrah. This is the 17th and 18th century. So basically, pietism was a movement that started within Lutheranism. So to any of our Lutheran listeners, yay! Uh, And it was a combination of emphasis on biblical doctrine with the Reformed emphasis on individual piety and living a vigorous Christian life. So in other words, Lutheranism, kind of the main holders of Martin Luther's teachings, they, they said, okay, well, this is great. And they kind of realized that Reformation Orthodoxy had gone too far in crushing emotionalism. So they said, well, it's not just enough to hold the right doctrine. We need to also have an experience, kind of like reclaiming monasticism to, to a more balanced sense. And they said, well, we got to have a, a, a practical Christian life and your emotions and everything that goes with it on top of doctrine. Mm-hmm. Right now, it would find limited successes within Lutheranism. If you start really studying it out, and I'm not an expert for sure in in this period of Lutheranism for sure, but I think from what readings I can remember, it it had more success in the Scandinavian countries, Norway, Sweden, Denmark, interestingly enough, than, than it did here in the United States with Lutheranism. But in any case, in the United States and then around the world, its ideas would be more successfully championed by an Anglican priest, John Wesley, if you've heard that name, it's because he eventually developed Methodism, right? And Methodist, that was a derogatory term, the idea that, man, these people have a method for everything, was the idea that knowledge by itself wasn't enough. It had to impact the life. You had to have an experience of piety, right? And so we always think of Methodism, but it'd also be fair to some of the smaller groups in Christianity. The Anabaptist brethren came out of this same kind of idea. So pietism gave birth to Methodism, and I probably could even say Anabaptist brethren, but Anabaptist brethren were a very small subset of that, and Methodism's really the dominant force mm-hmm. that, that pushed that through the 17th and 18th centuries. So now we get closer to our lifespan, because that's going to give way to, quote, liberalism in the 19th and 20th centuries. Now, again, here's another term like scholasticism that is used in other areas of life, so you could get confused on terms if you make assumptions. Liberalism is not to be confused with philosophical or political liberalism. Okay, those are two different things for another podcast at another time. (laughs) Basically, in, in Christianity, liberalism means it accepted modern critical methods of biblical interpretation. So in other words, they went away again from this kind of emphasis on emotion to saying, no, you need to get back to correctly interpreting the Bible, but we're going to make it fresh. We're going to have new ways of doing so. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's really the easiest way to put it. And around the same time, around the 20th century, these last two really kind of start coming up at the same time, you get Pentecostalism and the wider charismatic movement. Mm. And what that was, was a movement really within some Christian churches that emphasizes gifts and emotional experiences believed to be conferred by the Holy Spirit, such as speaking in tongues or healing of the sick, etc. Pentecostalism is the most well-known family of churches in the charismatic movement. So we might as well just say charismatic movement, but some people are like, what? There's, There's lots of denominations that lay claim to being part of the charismatic movement. Yeah. Uh, But so again, you're, you're swinging again towards, no, we need more emotionalism. And then that leads us finally to today, if you've survived all of that, really today, and this isn't an official period as far as I don't have any textbooks or anything that would list it this way. So this is my own. So again, if you don't like this last one, you can fully blame me on this. (laughs) 
I, I like to call today denominational struggles between subgroups of emphasis, liberalism, and charismatic movements within. Yeah, and you can tell I made a, it because I made it way too. I was going to say, yeah, that that yeah. The, the brevity is not the era that we're in. Clearly, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, well, brevity is definitely not my my strong suit either. I'll just be honest, and people listening to this podcast know that. But so basically, I was what say, I'm, I'm meaning you're is, telling me that the last 15 minutes were were brief. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they weren't. Anyway, but but you see, we want you to be fully fed intellectually and emotionally on a beautiful faith. Amen. So that's why we're going to move out of this. But my point is, is that. Most textbooks and all that will say that liberalism and the charismatic movement are still coexisting today. Mm -hmm. But I didn't like I didn't like how that was worded because it makes it sound like their intention and in having equal emphasis. And that's why I was trying to come up with something else that maybe if I'd spent more time on our notes, I, I could have created a more concise, creative way to say that. It's okay, I forget because, because it's not because it's not exact coexistence. Right, because it's going to depend on your denomination. It's going to depend on areas of the country, whatever. It's the ditches are still there. It's just that now the crowd is kind of more divided between the ditches, yeah, versus just all jumping on one side or the other. And a lot of this debate is happening within individual denominations and subgroups within them. Well, not so much the whole of Christian thought like these others, where the whole the majority were swinging this way, the majority were swinging back that way. Now it's like it's diluted. The, the swings have been diluted within yeah. subgroups. Well, I think the subgroups have way more nuance now, and there's more ability to have nuance because of both the spread of information and the ease of access to that information, right? The ability to get outside of your own bubble, to experience something different, um, and have so many different options. Like that, that impacts so much that wasn't necessarily the case for most of these older periods where you kind of were stuck with whatever you grew up with or you had to directly rebel against that and there wasn't there wasn't as as high of a chance that you would interact with an ideology or a or one of these subcategories within your own community it was mostly just kind of like the youth that naturally rebel against their parents way of doing things and that usually goes one direction so yeah it's much less it's it's instead of it being polar ends, it's more of a spectrum across the board that that people fall on, and yeah. you're exposed to just so much more now. Very true. So speaking of exposed, let's get out of my heavily intellectual and swing more towards maybe a little bit of the emotional. Let's talk about because we said this is diluted among denominational experiences and and subfaiths and whatever. Let's talk about our own personal experiences within our own denominations our denomination with this pendulum. Mm. Okay, so where have, we, where have we seen this in our own religious experiences? Because that's probably where most of our listeners are going to be coming at it. They're like, fine, this history doesn't seem to impact me, but right now I'm dealing with this pendulum in my individual church, in my individual faith community. So, Ryan, where have you seen this pendulum, or how have you experienced this pendulum in your own faith community? Well, what's funny to me is, is I've experienced the pendulum and, and the spectrum not necessarily uh, the way that you would expect. I mean, I have done it the way you expect too, but but most of the time that I see it interacted with, um, it's people basically Im imploring cognitive dissonance without realizing it, like, like using cognitive dissonance without realizing it. So for example, uh, when I was pastoring full-time, uh, my church members got on this big rant. My church members were definitely more on the fundamentalist conservative side of things. Um, very much great at memorizing scripture and, and employ and employing it whenever they wanted. And, um, very, very much about Bible study and prayer together and, and very much about an intellectual faith took notes during my sermon, very engaged. Uh, even, even there was a baby even, uh, that would just stare at me the entire time I preached dead quiet. Um, just everyone in that church was, very much intellectually engaged with what was going on. And then one day I hear them go on this rant about, about churches that meet on, on Sunday, because my faith tradition meets on Saturday for church. And they had gone to a very popular mega church in the area. Very, very popular mega church in the area. I think I know where you're talking. And about. Uh, they were talking about how there's no way that what that mega church did was holy uh, because, and, and I kid you not, this is one of the things that was said. Yeah, I went to one of their services to give it a try, to give it a, to see what it was like firsthand, which already was more than I was expecting, to be honest. Like, I was going to say, like, credit, credit, yeah, to, them, credit to him on that. But then he said, and I just remember how I felt the entire time I was there. 
it did not feel good. My stomach felt like it was rumbling from the loud bass and from the obnoxious, from the obnoxious volume of the music. And, and I just felt, or maybe they didn't eat. Yeah. Right. I, and, and I just felt so uncomfortable the time, this, the entire time I was there, there's no way that that is, uh, that that is what is acceptable to God. There was no intellectual, like, you know, uh, deconstruction of what they had experienced and, and what they what that church was doing. Nope. It was literally, I didn't like it because of how I felt when I was there. And these are people Mm. that would, that if you talk to them would tell you that your emotions are deceitful and you shouldn't trust them that much. And it was just really funny to me to watch that happen. And had I had the framework of this conversation more in mind, I probably would have called them on it to be, to be a hundred percent Frank with you. But yeah, I, it, it is, uh, it's interesting to see that. Uh, what about you? Yeah, well, it's it, it's fascinating. I mean, I'm thinking just watching my own denominational persuasion change in my lifetime. When I was a kid, at least in the individual churches I attended, because again, we we've also had this conversation, individual churches within a denomination can be different depending on their makeup and whatever. But the church I grew up in was definitely more on the intellectual emphasis, but but almost heavily so. Like I can remember a preacher that literally brought stacks of books, religious books to the pulpit. And you could know when the sermon was going to be done because the stack of books would move from one side of the pulpit to the other wow. side of the pulpit because they were opening them up and reading quotes out of them and, and everything. It was almost like a lecture that was had gone bad. Right. And yet that was presenting the truth. Right. You hear a lot of talk about the, the, the present truth or presenting the truth, or it's all about, knowing the right things, and we know this, and the other people don't, et cetera, et cetera. And then some of the earliest conflicts I can remember in my churches, and and this tends to be one area maybe that's just more obvious for people to see these pendulum attacks, even though it, it, it transcends more of this, but like music, because some people were complaining about, well, I don't feel the music, I want this, and then people were like, you just want that kind of new music because of its emotionalism, and you're disconnecting the frontal lobe, and you're not thinking, and truth is thinking and thought. And and so I, I can remember debates, mainly along music lines, but I, I can remember debates where people talking about emotion bad, thinking good, mm-hmm. or people pushing back and going, no, 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 emotion's important, and you can't just think all the time, mm. and, and and whatever not. And then when I, later in life, when I moved into pastoring, I would notice both of these subgroups and I was usually having to deal with conflict between them. Mm. Uh, A lot of my conflict stemmed when you really got down to it and talked to people that were fighting one another or upset about a direction the church was going or whatnot, kind of, and like you said, if I had really had this conversation in mind at the time, maybe I could have called it out easier. But it really was that. It was different understandings of what is vital for faith. Yeah. Right? Is intellect what God really wants us to focus on? And the only method by which he works is emotion to be more prioritized. And the reason the church is struggling is because we haven't emphasized it. And and people kind of building personal ethics and pieties around those thoughts. So I, I've definitely seen the struggle mm-hmm. uh, for certain. I Being in the South... And and maybe this is just in our own denomination. I haven't seen as much of like churches that are heavy emotion and not intellect in our faith community. Yeah. But I, I do know they're out there because I know people that attend that, but I have not necessarily personally attended that. So my, my experiences have always been more on the intellect side versus the emotional. Mm. No, for certain. That's just been my experience. Well, I, I, I would say too, the, it is weird that I noticed this pattern that it tends to be that emotions tend to be the operating, you know, the, the, the mode of operation for younger people and intellectualism for older people. And on, to be honest, it's probably something to, it has something to do most likely with the idea that they have a lot more experience to inform their beliefs and thoughts and, and actions and behaviors. Whereas younger people only have what they feel in the moment, like when they feel like the high school is everything and they can't see past their first breakup and, you know, like things like that. Um, and I will say that, like, for sure, I've seen the emotional side of things, um, once again, specifically within youth, where it just, I don't feel, uh, they they don't want to study so much. They would rather go with their emotions. And to be honest, I watch this happen a lot with with 
many atheists. We've talked about how when they encounter something in the Bible, many, many Christians encounter something in the Bible that they are uncomfortable with. Uh, a lot of them, that tends to be the start of their deconstructive journey. And um, it is interesting how much they would argue, many of them argue that this was a completely rational and, and kind of objective decision that they came to. And yet it was, or, you know, conclusion that they came to that there is no God and yet their entire motivation for doing so was how they felt upon reading a verse or a passage or how they mm. felt after hearing a sermon or seeing a Christian do something against Christianity. You know, like the, it, it is interesting to watch that happen. And that's, that's honestly, that's what I'm seeing more of is intellectual people or the, the not intellectual people, those who are on the intellectual end of the spectrum, um, operate with a lot more emotion than they're willing to admit. And I think people on the emotional side of the spectrum, which I tend to be on, uh, don't acknowledge the importance of, of intellectualism enough. So it's not even that they, they yeah. it's not even that they operate with more intellectualism than they're willing to admit. It's that they're not operating with enough. Whereas intellectualism operates with more emotions than it is willing to admit and just needs to embrace it. Yeah, and again, and this brings up another point, I think, is, you know, we were kind of saying youth versus old, but I think another assumption we make is, again, those categories, a lot of this is on personality. Oh, yeah. When it really comes down to it is personality. So, for example, picking on myself again, even as a kid, I was always more, and part of this, you could argue, was my experience in church or whatever. I mean, obviously, there's societal habits or, or community habits mm -hmm. or, you know, your environment does influence a lot of growth, but... I've always tended to be more on the intellectual side. Yeah. Now, I have emotions, don't get me wrong. And like you said, there's probably a lot of times I would definitely meet your definition where emotion has played a lot more into my decision-making than I care to admit. Yeah. And so I'm I'm guilty of that assessment as, as, as charged. But at the same time, right, I, I found it funny because I would have people that would assume I was just like all the rest of the youth. And so they're like, well, you should be enjoying this because this is all this emotional... Yeah music or stuff or whatever. And it just wasn't my cup of tea. And I was just kind of like, eh. And, and I've seen it on the flip side where I've seen some adults and whatever. They were like, look, here's this really deep study seminar thing or whatever. You sit here for five hours and this guy's droning on or girls droning on about whatever. And I've seen adults checked out like, this is boring. Like, mm. can't we, ha you know, so I, I, again, a lot of this I think is also personality I do, I do think generations have tended to kind of try to mold everyone one direction or the other, yeah. just because the majority always tries to rule. But no matter what the generation has been, I'm sure if we went back in Christian history, there was definitely people in these subsets that were the opposite of wherever the trend in Christianity was at the time. Yeah. It's just the problem that back then, for a good many centuries, the church just killed anybody who spoke up about being different Facts. Than, than, the, than the prevailing narrative. Facts. So Whereas nowadays, you don't tend to get killed i mean your character might be assassinated a bit by some other christians oof but you know that that being said we we hear a lot more of the debate because it's more people can talk freely and not get excommunicated or disfellowshipped or whatever you want to call it over yeah absolutely so i think um i think the the logical place to end as, as we move forward is um let's let's hit up um let's hit up some scripture I know that both of us listed out a ton. We probably shouldn't go through all of it because there is one more thing that I, I think we want to get to as we close out, but we will go a little over, I'm sure. Um, and as normal, as normal. So let's, uh, cause brevity is not either of our strong suits. So let's, um, let's kind of jump into this a little bit, um, for going to biblical principles on, uh, some of these, you know, emotional experiences versus intellectual experiences. And I think, to be honest, one of the biggest moments in scripture where I see this at play, um, is, um, is Jonah and mm. the, the last chapter of Jonah where God saves, uh, Nineveh and Jonah gets mad about it. And he says, I knew you would do this. I knew that if I went, you would save them. So you may as well kill me now. Cause I, I, I don't want to be here. And he's, he knew the truth and he, he knew intellectually what would happen. And he still want it because of how it made him feel. He wanted to die. Um, he, yeah. he would have rather died than see this happen. 
he knew that God was graceful and he, and he would have rather died because he specifically uh, didn't like these people or didn't think they were worthy of any sort of salvation. And, it, and that is one of the biggest dichotomies to me of someone who, who knows something, but they're so overwhelmed by their emotion. And this happens to be a moment where that's a bad thing, um, where Jonah should have submitted his emotions to his intellectual or his in, intelligence in that moment and said, or his knowledge of who God is in that moment and said, if I know this to be true of God, then I need to accept this. And his, so I, that is one of the most powerful moments to me where it was emotions trumping, um, emotions trumping intelligence. Now I want to do the flip side of that, um, and talk about literally all of the Psalms, all of them, every, every, every (laughs) single one of them. Um, no, not every single one of them, but specifically the ones talk about not brevity. Yeah. Right. Specifically, uh, the ones, a lot of the ones that David writes and the reason that this is so significant um, is I think this is a moment where I think David, sometimes he airs probably too much on the side of emotionalism, but for the most part, I actually think he balances both really well. Um, and the reason being a lot of his Psalms that he, that he wrote were, they're this, they're this intense expression of emotion, right? This expression of how he feels. And usually it's this dark expression. It's God, where are you? Um, you know, why are you letting my enemies get to you? How long will you allow this to go on? And and just frustration and anger coming out. But then almost every single one of those Psalms ends with a, but you are God. I know you are bigger than this. I know you will rescue me. I know you will come. I know you will do this. You are stronger than all of this. Uh, so I will trust you. And it's this moment mm-hmm. where he gives space to express how he is feeling, but he knows he he acknowledges that there is a truth beyond his emotions as well and lives in that truth knowing that it's not going to change necessarily how he feels but that knowledge can be what sustains him through how he feels and through those experiences mm. i think david i i think his expressions in the psalms and it's not every single one that he writ, he wrote i i can't prove that necessarily i haven't read every single one of them and can and have a, a counter example ready. But in most of them, that's the pattern of behavior I see from him. And I, I'm, I really appreciate that about his Psalms. Wow. Yeah, no, I really like that. Uh, and that kind of gets into some of the principles I was going to even talk about. Three of the gospels record an incident where Jesus is giving a teaching and he talks about what he's, what God is looking for in a, in a religious experience, so to speak. And the one that comes to my mind first is Mark 12, 30. And it says, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Mm. Right. And the idea is the heart and the mind are both listed as things that God wants you to have an experience or a use of in a relationship with yeah. him in a, in an, ex, in a, in a faith experience with him. And, you know, sometimes we go, well, love the Lord your God with all your mind. You know, there's some, like you said, more fundamentalists or whatever. We, we tend to think, what, what's your mind doing? And we miss, well, you're also supposed to love them with your heart. Yep. But on the flip side, you have a lot of people that are so interested in, I just, it's just how I feel at church or how I feel in faith or whatever. And they forget that you need the mind, <laughs> right? What, what, what's that thing, like you said, with David is going to sustain you, which yep. reminds me of the, the other example I was going to give, which is kind of a story that in, in a way encapsulates a lot of the same principle you were saying with David and his use of, of the Psalms. And it's John 11 the story of Lazarus. Now, most of us always think about the story of the resurrection of Lazarus with he's being resurrected and stories of death and life and whatever. But there's an inner, three things really pop up to me. I meant that when it comes to emotion versus intellect, the first thing is that in chapter 11 of John alone, there's over eight expressions of Jesus's emotions in that chapter, which is more than any other chapter in the Bible. Mm. And why that stands out to me is that John's gospel is most concerned with the divinity of Jesus as opposed to, say, like Matthew, who's focusing on the humanity of Jesus, etc. So in, in a gospel that's trying to prove that Jesus is divine, it goes out of its way to show that the divine has emotion, mm. which, I, which I just find fascinating, because we don't tend to think of that with God. The traditional Western view of God is this kind of stoic, right, you know, unthinking. For me, it was always like, I don't know why, but like the British judge with a wig going like, guilty, you know, it not feeling, not whatever. But here John is like, no, 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 he's divine. 
and he has emotion. And even more fascinating, kind of getting back into the history, Gnosticism was already starting to rear its its head even in the early church. And John is writing this, and a lot of times he goes out of his way to mention things that would person like almost on purpose poke Gnostic believers in the eyes. Mm. Right. So a Gnostic's like, it's all about knowledge and God is all about knowledge and what you know. And then he's like, eh, and Jesus is all emotional. Mm. Right. You know, and they're just like, ah, you know, they just wouldn't like that. But even more than that, uh, another thing that really pops out to me in, in this text is when Lazarus dies, obviously Jesus waits and all that, but when he's on his way to Bethany to deal with it, both sisters of Lazarus, Mary and Martha, go out to see Jesus individually, one at a time. And they have different needs, faith-wise, and different, thus, experiences with Jesus. So, like, Martha comes out first, and when Martha shows up, and it's funny, they're both dealing with the same problem. Both women say the same thing to Jesus when they show up. They're like, if, if, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Mm-hmm. Right? So they, they look the same until all of a sudden Jesus interacts with them. And when Martha shows up, Jesus starts with a theological discussion. He engages in, like, this theological debate with her. She's like, if you'd been here, he wouldn't have died. And he goes, well, do you believe that your brother will rise again? You know, we'll see the resurrection. And she's like, well, yeah, in the last day. And he's like, well, I'm the resurrection and the life. And they, they start having this theological, intellectual debate about resurrection power and, and God. Hmm. Right? And, and, and you kind of get Martha, whenever you see her in the Bible, she, she tends to be more the intellectual one, like, make my sister do this, or we got to do this, or, we got to cook all this stuff. But she, she, she tends to be like holding it together. She's got to manage everything. Like, as soon as she's done talking with Jesus, she's the one going to find Mary. Like, okay, now's the time you need to get up and go and go talk to the teacher. She's, she's thought process, you know, she's just more intellect. Well, when Mary shows up, she says the same thing, but when she gets there, she collapses in exhaustion. She's like so emotionally wasted. Like when Martha goes to see Jesus, Mary stays behind just weeping with all the mourners, mm-hmm. right? Like she's not even interested in going and having a talk right now. She's just, she's just an emotional wreck. And when she gets the strength to go to Jesus, she collapses in exhaustion there. She just can't even stay standing. She's like, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. We would tend to say she's more the emotional one. And what's fascinating to me is that when Mary collapses at Jesus's feet, unlike Martha, who he engaged in the theological discourse with, he doesn't say a thing to Mary. She says the same thing, and he just weeps with her. Mm. He says that Jesus wept. He just starts crying with her. And why that stands out to me is that here you see two different Christian faith experiences. You see one that tends to err on the side of intellect, and you see another one that tends to err on the side of emotion. Mm -hmm. And what I find fascinating is that both personalities are legitimized and affirmed by Jesus, who related to them according to their need. Right? In other words, Martha didn't come up and be like, well, I don't understand the resurrection or whatever, and he doesn't go, you cold, heartless woman! Why aren't you upset about your brother? You know, he doesn't do that. And when Mary shows up weeping, he's not like, get it together, don't you believe in the resurrection? Mm. Right. He, he meets both of them where they are and he affirms them by ministering to them in that need. Martha needed an intellect. She needed to reassure her mind. And so Jesus does. Mary needed to reassure her heart. And so Jesus weeps with her and helps her know he feels her pain. And he does that. Right. And so, first of all, wherever you land on the theological spectrum of you tend to be more emotional or more intellectual, I want you to know that Jesus affirms that. Mm. The, the Bible is very clear. Both are valid. Where the balance comes, and this is where I wanted to kind of close this up, this chapter also makes note, and the Psalms and a lot of other things, is that if in the hour of crisis, all you have is a cold, dry, theological formalism, you're toast. And if in the hour of crisis, you only have an emotional experience with no theological foundation, you're also toast. Mm Mm-hmm. Right? Your experience is valid, but you need to balance it. And this is where the the Bible talks about attention, which is kind of where we were at the beginning, so it's good to circle around to it. It talks about living in the tension between emotion and intellect, and that tension is going to be stronger on one of those sides or the other, depending on your experience and your personality. So, like, for me, I tend to be very intellectual. I have to spend a lot of concrete personal effort on dealing with my emotional side of my faith, on being more open to emotional experiences, on not denigrating them or dismissing them as fast or as easy as I do, 
this kinds of thing. It, it, it takes me almost intentionally sometimes being willing to participate in a service that I tend to think is more emotional than intellectual. Uh, these kinds of things. When, when I have to have attention, it's going to be on the emotional side. For some other people, it might be you're doing great on the emotional side, right? I mean, your hands are in the air for the worship music. You're, you're, you, you, have, you cry on the drop of a dime. And again, these aren't bad. Yeah. Um, remember, what I'm trying to say neither of these are bad. The Bible, Jesus validates them. What I'm saying is you need to self-assess which side are you most comfortable and then realize that you need to make efforts to have healthy biblical tension on the other. In other words, your faith isn't going to be enough just intellectual or emotional. You need both. But the tension is obviously going to be for you whatever the opposite of you is. And that's what you're going to have to really prayerfully explore and make efforts to, to include in your life. Because if you just fall back on one of them at the expense of the other, when a crisis comes, it's not going to be enough. Yep. It's not going to get you through. Absolutely. No, I... 100% agree with that. I think the tension is necessary, and I'm grateful for two sides that kind of pull at each other because it, it does help keep us from going as a, you know, as a whole, one, you know, hard one direction or hard the other. Um, I am grateful for that tension, and uh, I, I do hope that as you are looking at your own personality, as your own, at your own faith experience and life experience, you are able to kind of identify which side you tend to lean more toward so that you can begin to balance that out. I'm not saying don't embrace who you are. Absolutely embrace and accept who you are and then understand how, you know, seek to understand how the other side can benefit what you, who you are and what you've embraced about yourself. Yeah. Find out how that can complement what you're doing. Because if you can put an explanation and reasoning to your emotions, you will be able to, it, it's, it's not that feeling something is bad, it's that not knowing what to do with those feelings is bad. And so your, the intellectualism that you have can help you understand exactly what to do, where to place those emotions, um, and, and how to process them. And that is so huge. So whether you fall on one side or the other, I, I do hope that you're able to identify the ways that, that uh, that the other side, the opposite end, can can complement and supplement your life and your experience and your personality. But yeah, I think uh, this is a solid place to end, Henry. What about you? Any final thoughts? Anything you want to close with? No, I, I agree with everything you just said. And I really long to see faith communities one day where both sides, the intellectual and the emotional, are given room to flourish and valued and where both of those communities can experience faith and the journey together. Mm. And I think that's going to be a very beautiful thing. Wow. A beautiful faith. No, that's, that's awesome. Good way to end that. So thank you, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next week.